So I don't know who we want to start with. We'll maybe start with you, Charlie, of what the word intentional means to you, and then we'll go to you, Billy. Well, in, intentional is doing what you say you're going to do. Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. How's it going, everybody, and welcome back. Today, we are going to be talking about how servant leadership helped Charlie Merrill take contact from near bankruptcy to a valuable company with $20 million in revenue and 40% gross margins. And my guests today are Billy Amberg II from Bloomwood Capital and his client and friend, Charlie Merrill, the founder and CEO of Contact. Billy was on the show years ago talking about minority growth capital, and he reached out recently to see if I wanted to have one of his clients, Charlie, on the show because it was one of the best examples he's ever seen of servant leadership. And Charlie took contact from essentially bankruptcy. It went under because they were making concrete buildings for cellular towers in the dot-com bubble. Uh, if you're not familiar with what happened there, well, essentially all construction stopped. So their company that specialized in building buildings for the dot-com bubble had to turn around and now they specialize in force protection, where essentially they're protecting buildings in our country and our country's infrastructure from terrorists. So they essentially test buildings and build buildings where like you could drive and shoot things into it and it'll be protected. Pretty interesting stuff. Charlie continues to leverage his employees' skills and ideas in times that require them to pivot, as well as come up with amazing new ideas that generate revenue and cash flow. And today, Charlie's going to be talking about his story, about his mentor and grandfather showed him the power of servant leadership, truly some amazing stories, and how that helped him and his employees build a super successful business that's a great place to work, has almost zero turnover, kicks out financial returns that I know everyone listening in would want. And I love this conversation because I think it highlights the true power of what it really means to be a servant leader. And I think a lot of people talk about it, but there's a couple points in this conversation that you're going to realize that Charlie really gets it. And I love his style. It's actual leadership, like truly letting people be who they need to be, but he's guiding and mentoring them. And there was one point in the conversation, I was like, Charlie, my guess is the impact where if you were to tell someone that you're disappointed, it would make them melt. And that's truly everything that I saw in this conversation because he backs it all up with not only the examples of servant leadership, but he also explains the outcomes like switching strategies, low turnover, huge bonuses, and a super valuable company that they'll eventually be able to potentially do an ESOP or any other exit that will reward everybody that's been involved, truly aligning Charlie and the ownership with all of the people that are running the business. And so our one announcement for today is that You've been hearing me talk a lot about intentional growth and running your company like a financial asset. And now we have the Intentional Growth Financial Scorecard. If you've been hearing me talk about in the past, this is the 2.0 version of it. I really enjoy it because it evaluates how well you are doing on running your company as a financial asset. It takes less than five minutes and you get a custom score in four key areas 
financial data management and organization. The second one is monthly financial package and performance monitoring. The third one is strategic budgeting and forecasting and cash flow management. And the fourth one is equity growth, valuation and ownership. Think about like the whole point is to understand the nuts and bolts and how that all the way gets up to ownership in your target equity valuation. And when you're done, you get four custom responses that lets you know how well you're doing and what you could be doing better. And then there are five videos on the results page where I walk through a case study that I pulled from the Intentional Growth Academy so you can actually see what good looks like instead of just wondering. So thanks everybody for tuning in and I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Charlie and Billy. You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be, and you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace, and you sit there and go, how do you know and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing when realistically you have the option just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash the reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long term whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor whether that's sell part of it or some of it essentially just have as many choices as you want but what we find is that most times entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how what they're investing and doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future. And I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, 100 and some employees. And my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going. But we never really knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices. So then you have to sit there and go, maybe I should just take the money home or I should just hope and pray. That is exactly why we created this financial assessment because if you organize your financials in a certain way and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make the decision's clear today to say, if I do these things, what's the impact on cash flow today, my ability to fund my growth, take the distributions, pay for taxes, all while staying in line, progressing towards the valuation that I want. So go take the assessment below and I hope you enjoy. Billy and Charlie, how are we today? Doing well. Terrific. Hope you are. I'm doing good. And uh, don't worry, we'll we'll make this uh, three-way conversation very enjoyable. We can see each other, so I'll make sure that we're uh, you guys aren't talking over each other. <laughs> I've done it plenty of times. But uh, why don't we, I want to tee it up to you, Billy, because you've been on the show and I really enjoyed our conversations and it was an interesting time when you were on talking about the different things going on in the market from capital and who's doing what. And But we're taking a totally different lens today. So why don't you just uh, give us, again, a little bit of your background and then we'll tee it up over to you, Charlie. You can do the same. And then, I don't know, Billy, if you want to kind of talk about you even just introduce why you thought this would be a good conversation because i think that was what instigated everybody to be on the uh this call right now yeah so uh thanks ryan i've, I've been uh an investment banker and uh and an investor for for a long time you know I, i've seen 
all different kinds of companies, um, all different kinds of styles uh, for leadership, uh, you know, different best practices. And I really thought that this was a good conversation for us to have because out of really all the companies that I've worked with, uh, Contech Industries, which is, you know, uh, the company that Charlie is at the head of, it has some has some interesting facets to it. One that they're in, you know, a pretty niche industry, which is you know force protection uh, for mission critical assets. But then the other is just like the astoundingly low turnover and the way that Charlie, who I've known for a while, you know how he makes his employees feel and and gives them you know an environment to to really thrive. And especially with you know the whole debate about you know come back to office or don't. And with the labor market, you know, being tough uh, for lots of different companies, you know, I think it's very timely. So I was going to say, I'm excited to uh, tee this up with you, Charlie, because Billy and I last time we were just deep in the numbers, right? And the numbers end up there because of people. So I think that this is very relevant and the other side of the coin. So I'm very excited as well. So Charlie, yeah, why don't you just give the, us and the listeners just a kind of a flyby and then we can unpack the topics like Billy was talking about. Sure. So, so you know, on the topic of, management style, how to keep people engaged, how to keep people retained. You know, we kind of center on the idea of trying to really put employees into the ownership experience where they feel like owners, they get treated like owners, and, you know, we're here to serve, but we look for outstanding employees and uh, then treat them outstandingly well. That's awesome. And that topic right there, I think, has got a lot of meat on the bone because I think a lot of people are struggling with just that or trying to figure out how to do that better. For for the listeners, let's talk. Why don't you give us a little bit of a background of what the business does, kind of your start mm-hmm. in the business? Like, how did you become an entrepreneur, you know, and then kind of the overall structure? And, and then we can get into how you figured out that this is the way to operate. So our business has gone through uh, two cycles. Uh, in the first cycle, which started back in 1990, uh, I started with a essentially a bankrupt company that made concrete buildings for cellular telephone companies. So we had a hundred and some thousand square foot plants. Uh, we made precast concrete buildings, shipped them all over the place. Took me about oh, 10, 12 years to really get the company out of the hole. And uh, then the internet bubble burst. And uh, suddenly the demand for uh, basically infrastructure to build out the Internet uh, collapsed. Hmm. So we did a pivot and uh, we went to our local congresswoman and said, hey, we've got, you know, we've got a lot of employees here and we'd like to find something for them to do. And our industry basically has collapsed. So our congresswoman, uh, you know, took that challenge on, got us eventually $5 million of grants. And we did a a whole redo of the company uh, to address, uh, you know, creating products to protect against terror attacks. Mm. Uh, You know, so we basically started the company from zero and, uh, you know, we've grown it in a lot of directions and, uh, you know, it's a totally new company today. 
like you said right before we hit record <laughs> there's there's probably a, a lot of discussions underneath the belly smiling um and so I, i'm very excited to to continue this conversation but i before the listeners why don't you explain your guys's relationship how you guys met and and what you guys are doing today bill you want to take that one take yeah off? sure so i uh charlie and i met at uh an organization called vistage uh, which I'm sure, Ryan, you're familiar. For the listeners that, that aren't familiar with it, though, I, I imagine many of them are, it's a, a peer advisory group. Um, so CEOs uh, from different industries you know, get together in these uh, local chapters. Uh, we process issues, uh, and we generally kind of act as each other's advisors. So that's that's where we met. And, you know, the the really the initial prompt for uh, me working in an official capacity with Charlie was to understand from Charlie's perspective how to make the company more valuable and think about it from a valuation standpoint and you know think about different ways to leverage uh, the assets that they had, whether it's from you know financial uh, hard assets or whether it's you know intellectual property or things like uh, marketing methodology things like that. And that's, you know, it's evolved into, you know, kind of a general financial advisory role uh, across across different areas, um, as I've gotten to know the business uh, quite a bit since then. Um, you think that that covers it, Charlie? I think so. I, you know, we've probably been talking three, four times a month for an hour uh, at a at a bite. And, uh, have developed a, a, a great relationship. So, so Charlie, let's go to, <laughs> I think about that turnaround and you talk about the people and the kind of the topic you teed up. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sure it's been through this cycle or this evolution of how the people became front and center for you. Where did this hat, how did that become this part of your DNA of how you're running the business and what you guys stand for? Well, I, I was lucky to have an incredible mentor. Uh, who was my grandfather. And uh, in the early phases of contact in the old, you know, in the turnaround that we did before the financial crisis, I mean, the dot-com burst, I learned a lot from him. And uh, he was a, a big proponent of servant leader and also treating people and talking to people uh, in a very respectful way. And, uh, I think that kind of set me off on the journey of realizing that it's okay to have people working for you that are smarter than you. It's okay to have, you know, people uh, air views that are not consistent with what maybe I would say. Mm -hmm. And he also taught me the Socratic method, which I think is incredibly powerful, which, you know, he said as the leader, if you're giving your opinions, you're killing the conversation. So rather than give opinions, ask people for their opinions and, you know, act as a moderator uh, as opposed to a leader. And I've kind of adopted that approach where I try not to give my opinions at all, uh, you know, simply because at the moment you give your opinion, you've killed the conversation uh, as a leader. You know, so I, I, lo- I love I love how you're describing that. When you say kill the conversation, maybe give an example of so, what... So my grandfather yeah. told me, you know, he was the CEO of a, a Fortune 200 company. He said, at the moment I say, I think blank, the meeting's over. 
He's like, everyone agrees. So he's like, never do that. Because the moment you say, I think blank, you know, everyone quits thinking and agrees with you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I took that to heart. And uh, I, I, I think you can ask strong questions and pull out, you know, it's a practical matter. Everybody in your company should know more about what they're doing than you should know. You know, if you have the right people sitting around you, mm-hmm. uh, each one should know more about their area than you know. So the the, the trick is to pull out their knowledge and, mm-hmm. and make a soup that, you know, that, that people want to eat. I mean, Ryan, it's really nuts. Like having a, a wife that was in management consulting at PwC, the the amount of fees that people pay just to have the consultants like basically reaffirm when the CEO <laughs> says, I think we should do X is just unbelievable. Yes, you should really good for you. Yes. <laughs> it's just unbelievable how, how much work gets done by consulting firms just to reaffirm once the management team has said, I think we should do this. So, and I think one of the, cause I agree with you guys wholeheartedly and I'm curious, Charlie, like there's a, there's the thing of intellectually knowing that and then doing it. Cause like, it's mm-hmm. kind of like with people who are like, Hey, smoking stupid, but I still do. Cause I'm addicted and it's easy to keep going versus doing the hard work to do what you know is actually the right thing and then actually embody it. Did you, ex- did you watch your grandfather see this work? Like where did you see it work or did you yes. have any? Okay. You got, you got, you got yeah. the question. Yeah. He, and, and, and he was, about a hundred percent on it. Uh, mm. in, in fact, I only learned about the Socratic method because I said, "Why don't you ever say what you think?" <laughs> That's awesome. And, and he said, "Well, the moment I do, uh, the meeting's over." So he's like, "I'll never do that." And I'm like, "Okay." So, and, and and then once once I heard that. Then I watched that he would ask questions that would really pull from them. What if this were to happen? Or if we did that and this happened, uh, how would we counter that? Or how would we uh, live through that? Uh, And he would make them go through the thinking process, but he would pull rather than push the conversation. Mm Mm-hmm. What did that do for responsibility and ownership of the discussions that were being had? I think it's, uh, well, l- 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 let's, let's do a simple exercise. I think we should uh, kill all the grass and put rocks in, and I think you should do it. How committed <laughs> are you to that? <laughs> for, right? First of all, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the little kid that would always go, Why? Why? Right. Why? You know, but but the thing is, if I asked you, I said, hey, Ryan, you know, let's make the yard look better and give me some ideas as to what we can do to make it look better. And also help me figure out what it would cost. And if you could work with the team to give me a mock up to see it, I would really appreciate that. So after you go through all that and you bring it to me and we you know, through an iterative process, figure out, okay, we're going to lock in on this. But essentially now this is your idea. How committed are you to fulfilling it and making it go? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like full, full commitment. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. As opposed to my idea of kill the grass and put rocks in. 
Mm-hmm. What you, do you think you're the biggest... like, heck no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> That's so stupid, Charlie. Like, don't we want grass? Yeah. Like, right. what is the, uh, what is the what is the challenge or hesitation or fear do you think people have in doing what you just de- just described? Before we move on, I think one of the key distinctions that we have to make there is that imagine that the law, that the landscaping company is a direct report and has no other customer. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. Because because they, they well the paychecks coming from. Exactly. If if it's yeah. uh if if it's that kind of relationship, then the impetus is okay. The boss wants this. Let's do this. In experience, people are more committed to their idea than they would ever be committed to mm-hmm. my idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so the trick in life is to figure out how to get a good outcome with your idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And Ryan, the, the yeah. one of the things that gets interesting there is. It's the same when you're negotiating an LOI or a term sheet. Mm-hmm. You're oh, way it, more like you're way more likely to go from LOI to term sheet with the same terms if the deal was the buyer's idea, if the terms were the buyer's idea. Really, that's the key to business is to figure out how to get the other person to come up with your idea as their idea. Mm-hmm. And so here's, I agreed with you guys and I love it. And actually I had uh, years, years ago, I think before uh, Chris Voss was as well known as he is now, he's at, he was actually on the podcast and never spent nice. a difference. I'm, I'm almost finished with that. Book. Yeah. I mean, he would like, <laughs> he would like steal, he would like steal your spouse and your kids and you would go, thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but, but it's, but it's that trick, Charlie, of like, it's your idea and that's how mm-hmm. he's got his process behind it. So I think one of the things that I've seen with leaders and I'm absolutely guilty of it myself is it's pretty clear, especially if you're a visionary, you're you know, a leader, you're more on the visionary side as well. When you have a, a rough idea or a clear idea of what you want, how do you then without pushing and projecting what you want, give that breadcrumb trail in a way that actually results in the outcome you guys just described. So I don't even know that I would agree with your premise. Okay. Uh, Our company is largely built on other people's ideas. And I'm not kidding. You know, because what we're doing is really not in my wheelhouse, but the people that I had in the crew, you know, were concrete and steel people. And we had to convert the business into something else. And, you know, we did a lot of roundtable. Okay, what the hell do we do now that our mm-hmm. existing business doesn't exist anymore? And it kind of went through an iter- iterative process. And we landed on, you know, 9-11 happened shortly after. And it's like, let's figure out how to, uh, to protect facilities against uh, acts of terror. And mm-hmm. we got the congresswoman engaged on that, but that was not my idea. Uh, that was not my vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, my partner, uh, who's since retired, that was his vision. And I said, I think it's a good idea. Let's go with it. Uh, let's do it. Um, so, and and, and, yeah. and honestly, the companies still run that way. We like to hear what do customers want? What do they need? And yep. if, if it feels like there's a market, we'll, we'll address it and come back with a solution. But it really is not built on my vision. It's really built more on my listening than my mm-hmm. seeing or saying. Totally makes sense. And I now I totally understand the pushback. And so let's say, and, and Billy, interesting to hear on your your lens on this too. So 
So Charlie, I by the way, I totally agree with this type of leadership, and I am like I don't embody it as well as I will hope I could, but because my my business partner Matt Buskirk is like a magician at what you're talking about, mm-hmm. and I look at it, watch him go, I'll never be like that. So you can go ahead and have that CEO job, but like what I think, Charlie, what I when I watch with our clients or the entrepreneurs I speak to is there's a there's a higher degree of of a, of this dynamic where the founder was the technician was the hvac the plumber the architect the designer the home remodeler whatever it was where it's very difficult for them to decouple because they were actually the product at one point part of the cost of goods sold maybe mm-hmm. even compared to someone like yourself where i saw like in the time of crisis the human brain actually opens up the prefrontal cortex to have new ideas mm-hmm. because of it's a time where it's necessary not I'm not taking away from your your style there. I'm just curious of like and from either of you like Billy, where you see like hey, because a private equity firm can come in, and when they don't have those relationships and they're not the one that did the job, they're like oh well now I can do all the things that should have been done, lead maybe the way that I should have because they don't have that my like myopic expertise. Is the question making sense? I'm just wondering if that's a challenge to do to it's it's another factor of another challenge of trying to you know, pull ideas out when someone's I like, cause they might actually have that clear vision because they were the technician, the, the expert, you know? So, so from my perspective, life is funny because you have an idea and you roll it out and it either sticks the way you hope it does. Or in some cases it sticks in a way that you don't even imagine, but you know, in, in our case, that's really more what happened. We we thought we were going to build barrier systems for the State Department. Uh, we, we went and got tested. We did full-on automobile crashes into our barriers. We passed. Uh, 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 General Dynamics did the test, you know, so they're pretty credible folks. And that day, the State Department changed the, the standard. And, uh, and then we learned the competitors actually were people who left the State Department uh, to uh, get after the the job of putting barriers around State Department. So it was a rigged game. So Mm -hmm. interestingly, you know, which is kind of the weird pivot, is at the same time 9-11 happened, nuclear power plants had to put barriers around their facilities by mandate, government mandated it. We actually had the testing to show that we could do exactly what they required. Mm-hmm. And boom, we, we, we did $12 million of business all delivered on the same day. Hmm. Uh, but it, we didn't have in our imagination uh, addressing the nuclear power plant business. We thought we were going to go after the State Department business, but we were, you know, there's some serendipity that mm-hmm. what we did fit something entirely different than what we aimed at. How did that idea percolate to the top, given your team and how you guys would converse? Well, again, we're, you know, concrete and steel company. So 9-11 happens. We're like, okay, you know, we, we yeah, need pretty relevant. To, yeah, we, we need to figure out things that can protect facilities. The biggest thing in a blast, an explosion, is the closer the explosion is to the uh, target, uh, the worse the damage. So what you want is to have the threat separated from the target. So, you know, we built a concrete barrier system 
which would literally stop a fully loaded semi. Hmm. Uh, uh, you know, which the the engineering force of a fully loaded semi onto a, a barrier system is really just unbelievable. The five-year-old uh, kid in me wants to participate in all of your testing on the way to, do, exactly. to figuring that out. If you want to go to Contact Industry Day and you're you're down there, they blow oh, stuff yeah. up. But we we do it. All. They shoot <laughs> they shoot stuff with a fifty cal rifle. It, they blow That's stuff awesome. up, man. It's great. It, awesome. It's something else. But anyway, you know, we we just figured okay, we we can do concrete and steel, and let's figure out how we can apply that to a new need, a new market. We figured, you know, after 9-11, anti-terror is pretty big. We actually got a, a job with uh, 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 the, the military uh, to put barriers around uh, all the, uh, you know, Reagan-era uh, shut-down nuclear uh, bombs. You know, so, hmm. you know, they, they just separated it so you, they couldn't be shot. But the military suddenly freaked out and said, holy cow, if there was an organized attack against our storage facilities— Mm-hmm. Do we have enough delay time for the military base to respond against the terrorists? Mm-hmm. They did some studies on that. Uh, there was a Senator Reed, not Harry Reed, but, uh, you know, from, uh, I think, Rhode Island. And he asked the, the government to do testing. And they said, no, we don't have enough delay time. Sandia Labs uh, did the analysis uh, out in uh, Albuquerque. And we got a several million dollar job making barriers to to put in front of the uh uh the storage facilities and you know that was our first foray into this and then we're like okay what else can we do with this and you know we figured okay let's let's stick with this barrier idea so you know there's a little bit of serendipity uh, uh my grandfather uh, bought a company called Farinon uh for something close to 50 million dollars and, uh, you know, there was a single owner. He got a check for $50 million. And he was asked to give a graduation speech. And, you know, he said, I'd like to look at you guys and tell you that it's all about, you know, working hard and, uh, it, and you know, carrying a vision forward. And he said, now that I'm much older, he said, that's only half of it. He said, the other half is... Uh, ignorance, uh, you know, and, and, and luck, you know, and, and in the entrepreneurial experience, you have to have a little luck. So something catches fire mm-hmm. and you have to have a little ignorance because very little that entrepreneurs do really makes a whole <laughs> lot of sense. <laughs> Amen, Charlie. Amen to that. Yep. Something, yeah. Something's got to catch fire. And most of the time, it's got a little bit of luck attached to it. So, and Billy, I want to come back in just a second, but I want further clarification for Charlie is, but I do want to hear your perspective when you're looking at some other companies. But Charlie, when you're you're having those conversations, you're you're bubbling up the ideas from your team. Mm -hmm. What is, as the leader, then as the moderator and the facilitator, using your words, how do you figure out what might be a good idea? How do you spark that debate? And then how do you finalize a decision and let everybody else know that their idea was respected, but not the final outcome? Well, you know, it, it, it usually comes from a simple question like, if we wanted to grow the company, what do you think we could do? And 
most people have at least one idea to that question. So you start with that. Generally, something percolates up that, okay, this seems like an idea. Now, the other thing I think is test it out small. You know, don't bet the farm on the idea. You know, let's do one. Let's put it in front of a customer. Let's see if we can sell it. Uh, so we, we do things that way. So, it's, it, you know, my Vistage leader calls it being like intrapreneurial. So to allow your people to have some cash to try to do something. And if it catches fire, you put more cash to it. So we, we allow, I'll give you an example. So mm-hmm. my guy said that let's do uh, wall systems that are modular and let's have them so they're light and easily connected and disconnected. And let's go after the police training of urban assault. And my feeling, which I kept to myself, was that's a lousy idea. <laughs> you know, I thought that's crazy. So I'm, I'm like, okay, guys, what, what does it cost to try this out? And we went to the local sheriff department, you know, ten miles down the road, and we said, hey, we're. They, they told me we could do a modest one for like twenty thousand dollars. I'm like, okay, fine, let's do it. Let's take it over to the local sheriff's department. Let's set it up on his yard. Let's see if he likes it. Well, hell if he didn't buy it. We've probably sold 50 or 60 of them since. They're usually $100,000. So, you know, but but I, I had the willingness to say, let's put $20,000 to that, what I thought was bad idea, and let's see if it floats. And, um, you know, and, and, and then does, now let's think about, how jazzed are the guys that came up with that idea mm-hmm. and that are now running that, that product? I got excited in my, I literally in my stomach, I got excited for them. And it, cause it's, and I know this is tied into Billy, when you and I were having our uh, other call is the, you know, trying to get the autonomy, the, the people that want autonomy, but they also want a bigger vision too. So they don't want to be told a hundred percent what to do, but they also don't want complete autonomy with no vision. So it's mm-hmm. this balance back and forth. And as we, you know, probably get into the remote working, some of the other stuff that can will probably come up again. But before we do, Billy, like I, I'm curious in your observations when you're looking inside of companies, because I've got similar experiences where you, can, you see there's all the financials and then you look at the people. And then you look at the leader and then you kind of like, you know, ripple, you can see it down through the culture, the way that Charlie is describing his leadership compared to other companies where you'll go in there. How do you assess the differences in the contrast of, you know, a different type of leadership style? How, how do you see that manifest? So it really, it, it comes down to really day-to-day interaction stance and, really just the number one thing that tells me whether or not I'm dealing with a good leader is what's their reaction or like on their face and like in their body posture when I ask them like, so talk about like your, like, what do you think you do well as a leader? That's typically what happens there. Um, In terms of if I'm actually like if I'm actually there in person, 
it's usually like there should be a lot more time when the leader is like with everyone else than apart. Super fascinating. There's also like if I'm asking a company for different info or financials or anything else, the number one indicator for me, like if that's all that I have to go off of for the leadership aspect is let me get you to the right people. And then just if they then do that and then basically say, hey, you talk to these people for this, that's their area where he or she doesn't have, the leader doesn't have to like have oversight or or whatever. So it's the little, it's those little things that imply trust Mm -hmm. um, and things like that. So that, that's kind of, that's how I, how I look at well, it. And I think about there's two there's two things that come right to mind about this dynamic where it's like exponentially upwards or exponentially downwards. It's almost like there's no neutral because like I think about the two topics are like, Charlie, I'm curious on how less stressful it is being a leader like this compared to the opposite of trying to hold the whole thing together by yourself. Like how does that manifest in your like level of stress? So, so- you know, I, I guess everybody in part has an I have a dream speech in them. So my dream has been to not be needed as a CEO. <laughs> I love it. I love it so Which much. Which consequently makes the valuation skyrocket. So and probably an easier job. <laughs> so I yeah. I do everything in my power to not be needed. Uh now so you might ask, how does how do you do that? Which is kind of an interesting question. One, you pay people a lot more than anybody else would. Truly. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, that's, that's things, standard across most of the organizations that have these things in common. So the, then the second thing is if we do well, write big bonus checks at the end of the year. We wrote $600,000 of bonus checks for 20 people this year. Right? So... Uh, you know, we, we don't BS about that. Um, and, and when that happens several years in a row, when people get bonus checks that are near equal to their annual pay, um, they're instantly wanting to feel like an owner. Mm-hmm. You know, so if somebody's screwing up, I typically don't have to do a damn thing. They will do it. They will say, hey, you're screwing up. You're going to cost me my bonus. Stop doing that, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So, and interestingly, I learned that from my granddad. My, my granddad did a tour of a company called Lincoln Electric, which is one of the premier welding machine companies. And he got a tour, and uh, he, he's, he's like, the, the feeling I get walking through is unbelievable. My granddad told the CEO of Lincoln Electric. He's like, people seem, they all have smiles. They like what they're doing. They're working hard. I don't see anybody goofing off. And he said, you know, you you must really work hard to, to achieve this kind of atmosphere. He said, no, quite the contrary. He said, typically, in a good year, these guys make a bonus bigger than their annual pay. And he said, if anybody is screwing off, he said, the guys will get on that person. And if they don't listen, they'll demand that they get fired. And he said, I don't have to do anything. These guys are totally bought in. They love what they're doing. They love that they get the kind of income they get. And they're so dedicated to this company, it embarrasses me. So, you know, a little bit I said to myself, you know, this Lincoln Electric story is one worth holding on to. 
And, and I heard that story probably 40 years ago. Um, but, you know, I thought to myself, why can't we be like Lincoln Electric? And so there, you know, so there are there are certain things that leaders do that are, become just like your grandpa did to you, mm-hmm. where the, it's yeah. forty years has been sticking in your head. Yeah. What are the little things that you have done to set the tempo to get that flywheel going so it actually does not need you to set and the tempo continuously? Well, if if you go the Socratic method, where you're asking people questions, and then you lock in on what are their ideas. And you turn them loose to do them. And when they work, they make a lot of money. It really doesn't take a, a big push from the leader. You know, it it it, it kind of does it for itself. Um, and and when they when when those guys see it happening not once but several times, that flywheel starts spinning at a pretty beautiful rate. Uh, and it doesn't require a lot of energy from me to get that flywheel running because the other guys are running much faster than I am. You know, the other thing that I, I learned from my granddad is that if you run a company and, and he had 20,000 employees, he's like, if you're at the center of the wheel, he said, if you turn just a very small amount, the people on the edge of the wheel are turning at a ridiculously fast rate. So he's like, be really careful that you're not overturning that wheel where people feel imbalanced and, you know, completely uncomfortable because you're changing things so fast they can't keep up. Ooh, so I, I like that a lot. Yeah. 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 I don't really change things a lot. It's I like mean, that jet ski. It's like when you're tubing behind a jet ski and you pivot and then yes, <laughs> you get them like swinging around like a slingshot. Right. Well, the, the, the leader that is over, over churning and putting too much torque on the wheel uh, causes a lot of headaches for employees. So, mm-hmm. I try to be very, very calm in the center of the wheel. I don't try to overturn it. Um, I let the wheel turn kind of at the speed it wants to turn, and I try to oil it so it turns comfortably, but I don't try to be the guy that turns it. You ever ever second-guessed this approach, or have you ever, like, caught yourself in a predicament where, like, this – you you might second guess this approach or you might have to like go away from it. I'm just kind of curious if you ever had any self doubts about it. it, it no, it, if anything, as it works, you become more committed to it. Uh, you know, and, and it, it, it works. So if anything, I feel like, why wasn't I more like this sooner? Yeah. I, I, I could totally see that you Charlie. Know? And like, yeah. and this is where in going back to the second part that I was going to bring up Billy, that I, you were, planted the seed with is like the valuation, the deal structure and such. But it's like, it's so funny because if you take these variables, when I look inside of companies, there's so much correlation and cluster of the leadership style that you're talking about, Charlie. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming it's probably not as stressful to run the business like you're running compared to some of the other people I've met where they're trying to hold everything together themselves. And then generally that leads to burnout, which generally leads to then a not, not so profitable business, which generally leads to then not a good valuation, which generally then leads to a larger degree of earnout. And then you have a boss who's telling you what to, it, it just spirals <laughs> in, in the wrong direction versus the, mm-hmm. like I said, it's exponentially the other direction based on how you're doing this. And, and so that, I don't know if you want to tee that up to you, Billy, of like how that manifests in more kind of the, the stuff that you were talking about. Well, it's, the uh, the owners and the, the management teams that un- that understand that it's actually simpler 
then the consultants and the business schools and things would actually have you think about. And the management teams that don't really compare themselves to competitors, but are more like, okay, well, how, how can we be the best in each category? Mm. Those are the ones that, that end up really succeeding because it's just, okay, well, yes. Like Charlie, to your point, like something that you had me do was, you know, kind of look at the, the different kind of rays elements that people are getting in, in industry. But mm -hmm. that was only from, that was only from a standpoint so that you could continue to be the best and to continue to, you know, pay people more than they can get anywhere else mm -hmm. rather than trying to figure out, you know, what's the, what's the lowest cost or mm -hmm. it's. Well, and on that, let me, let me pull that thread for a second. So, so Charlie and Billy, like there's this concept that I'm constantly beating the drum of, of like a lifestyle business in my definition is, and my dad and I had a lifestyle business with 20 million, mm -hmm. suck the cash out. We were solving for K ones. And a lot of entrepreneurs do that. And I don't think a lot of people do it on purpose, but I will say that it was our lack of understanding of what created value in the business. So it was like, we're trying to optimize for the cash flow for the, for the household because that we didn't understood or understand what would create an asset. And so like mm -hmm. that, that, I think that concept, even though I think people might have a desire to lead like you are, like invest in the people, which will grow the asset. Bill, you and I <laughs> probably could talk about that for days, but we didn't know that. So we would, we were always kind of toying around with our head of like, we should do that because it makes sense, but then it's eating up our cash and therefore we don't understand how value creates. So there's kind of this weird catch 22 that we always caught ourselves in. So I, I'm curious, like when you think Billy, when you're going in there and looking at companies, I mean, like how this I'm trying to think, I mean, like, it's it, like how obvious it's almost binary. I don't know if you, if it is binary, but it's, it's such a small gray. Cause you're either leading like what Charlie's explaining or it's almost like you're not. I mean, do you see gray area or? So there really, there really isn't a gray area because it's, it really has to do with psychology. And, and what I generally see in folks like Charlie that aren't present in, in others is there's a core, some people are much more wired to with the same expected value to really favor not losing versus chance to gain. Mm -hmm. And the re and the, the reality is that unless you're willing to be in that chance to gain bucket, given the same expected value outcome, your gro your growth rates always going to be capped. When doing these uncertain this uncertain math around, okay, well, yeah, but I have a company now and like our pay is at parity and like we're doing like all this stuff. It's kind of like every other company. How do I get from that to kind of what Charlie's talking about? Right, right. There's not so much of a blueprint for that. And one of the reasons is that, you know, so few companies do it. And when you're doing this uncertain math, everyone unconsciously weighs what they have more than what they can become. Especially when, you know, people putting food on the tables on the line, people's retirements on the line, you know, you have employees, this, that, and the other. 
And like, that's a, that's a big decision to make. But at the end of the day, because what we're talking about is people just like in one-to-one relationships, your relationships with your business and the people within it are organic. You can't grow a one-to-one relationship without adding vulnerability that improves trust. Yeah, I think that last word that you just said is so damn crucial here. And honestly, Charlie, I'm just like our conversation. I've known you now for 50 minutes and your demeanor and everything, you just, you you radiate, is that the right word? (laughs) Radiate trust and confidence and stability. And I think that is getting there. I think about like myself over my journey and just people I know, it's like, it's like you people like to build your point. How do you get there? You know, like standing on the confidence, knowing that like this is the right approach. It's like this leap of faith. And what I'm seeing right now and how that's being manifested kind of when Billy and I were talking is like the, hey, come back. And it's the culture that is now hybrid and remote. And it's like really what we're seeing. And this is what I'm interpreting. And this is only my words is like I watch all these Wall Street Journal articles or wherever. And it's like, well, it's because the bosses suck. Like, and I know it's not that, it's not that general, but it's like, there has to be a common sense and like trust and respect that is wrapped around this because these aren't that crazy of problems, but like, for some reason, everybody's misaligned. But again, my point is like, you're, you're, you radiate trust and respect and stability. And I'm assuming you listen, which it's amazing what, what kind of goodwill that brings, but it's, what's the blueprint to say, Hey, I got to get there or have a transformation over the culture or my leadership style? How did any, any thoughts about like how that evolution? So, I mean, go ahead, Charlie. Oh, go ahead. So, so for me, it's about getting the right team in place. And, and, you know, we started, you know, bootstrapping uh, with very little assets. So you kind of have to say to yourself, if I want to grow the business, I got to get, players that are capable of taking the business much farther than it is today. And you have to be willing to take that gamble that Billy's talking about and hire people that really are all-star players, even though you almost can't afford them. Uh, and, And I guess if I've learned anything, the best players will produce two to three times the output that average players so true. produce. So true. Eighty twenty. You know, so you got to take that leap and say, I'm going to try this. And then when you get that boost in performance, now you hire the next person like that. And then when you get that boost in performance, you hire the next person like that. And in five or 10 years, you can put together an all-star team. And all of a sudden, it just lights up and goes and it's fabulous. Uh, But you got to have enough confidence to say, I'm going to hire an all-star player who's probably smarter than I am that has proven past performance to demonstrate that they are an all-star player. And you give them the environment that makes them comfortable to be them. Hmm. You you can't micromanage an all-star player because if you do, a, they hate life, and they're looking for a job tomorrow. So you have to give them, you know, plenty of rope to climb the hill, you know, 
in the worst case, they hang themselves. But give them the rope to figure out which it is and let them have some some room to do their thing. What are the non-negotiables uh, for you, Charlie? Like where someone like does something and because I, I feel like you, you'll let a lot of rope out, but I feel like uh, just sure. talking to you, you've got some things that are like absolutely on the no I, list. I, I have probably two non-negotiables. Uh, you know, and, and obviously everybody has the lying, cheating, Ten Commandments kind of non-negotiables. But beyond that, uh, to me, don't surprise me. I don't want to learn something bad that you know about from other people that you should have told me about. So don't ever let that happen. I want to be the first to know, not the last to know if there's a problem. And if you tell me, I'm we're going to work together to solve it. And I'm not going to chop your head off. <laughs> now, if I find out about it that you've hid it from me, you're you're not going to stay. We're we're done. So that's the first non-negotiable. The second non-negotiable for me, which is probably the only other one, is don't become an in-company politician. <laughs> I love it. You know what's so funny? You know? I was going to say, I, I, I was trying to use your Socratic method and I was just asking you questions, but I was going to say, I bet you, you don't deal with any drama bullshit. Like I bet you <laughs> I, none, zero. <laughs> That's what I look at your face. I like, absolutely like none, yeah. zero. Like, and none, I don't we, feel like there's even any wiggle room in that comment. <laughs> no, there's no wiggle room in, and everybody knows it. And you know, I, I tell people we're only going to get where we want to go. If we all pull on the same side of the rope. Uh, so if I got anybody pulling on the other side of the rope, uh, you don't get to stay. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. You know, uh, you know, maybe you slip, okay, but you better be pulling on the same side of the rope as everybody else. So those are really my only non-negotiables. Well, I, I think that's helpful because I, I mean, I think I got twin six and a half year old girls, Charlie. So like, I'm mm-hmm. trying to do that kind of stuff where it's like, hey, you, here are the non-negotiables, but there's room to play inside. The boundaries, right? It's hard, <laughs> really hard. But so, so let me add because since you talked about raising kids, I've got two. the The younger of the two is graduating from college, uh, and and they're wonderful kids. So I think that as a leader or parent, uh, and running a company is not that different from being a parent. Uh, you want to give people a fence that says we're going to stay inside this fence. And we're not going to go outside this fence. And as people achieve and trust grows, the fence area grows. So as a leader, your job is to keep people in the fence, but to constantly expand the fence. So there's more and more room. But it has to be earned. People have to earn that, you know, growth of the fence. When you're probably And just- you want to do that for your kids? And your employees. And you're probably just making sure that, like, to use the metaphor or keep on the metaphor, keep the play going, right? The play is the game. Absolutely. Right? And you want to make sure that everybody's having fun because they know where the boundaries are. Amen. That's awesome. And and then the other thing is you want people, you know, I I, I watched, Billy's a basketball player. I don't know if you know that, but I've watched a lot of professional basketball and teams that have someone that holds the ball lose. The good teams have very rapid ball movement, and it creates an open shot because if the ball's moving in the right kind of way, it gets the defense off balance. You get an open shot, boom, you go. So I don't like employees that hold the ball. You know, it's like if you got something, get it done, 
you know, let's move to the next thing. You know, don't don't be the sticky part of the team where the ball's not moving properly. I love it. So, you know, I, I encourage that. But but that's not pushing an idea. It's pushing a process. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I like that. And, yeah, yeah, and I yeah, don't yeah. mind pushing a process. You know, but but the, it's like don't be a ball hog. Don't sit on something to where you're stopping the whole company. You know, keep things moving. Keep thing. Keep the energy going. And they love it once they see it in practice. You don't have to. You don't have to keep singing that song. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And Billy, you you had uh, your hand up. So like, yeah. What, what so the... I'm just gonna go a few kind of a few things here. So one of the things that it's it's critical to understand is that the process of going from wherever you are to whatever kind of leadership or company or culture style, it's iterative. And I'll explain why is because, you know, if you're, if you're creating this mentality and if you're, you know, if to Charlie's point, if you're saying, you know, you want to hire these all-star players and, you know, you want to pay them, you know, more than they can get anywhere else that creates a dynamic where, you can very effectively be slow to hire and quick to fire because now you aren't dealing with the same employee pool as all your competitors. Well, and you're, getting the access, you're getting access to a different level of talent and a different level of commitment than other people. So it's actually not, there are silver linings in like kind of taking this leap. The other aspects are, you know, I, you know, no, no offense to you, Charlie, but, I think the best run organization in the world is Bridgewater Associates. Ray Dalio's from his book principles. It has a lot of what, you know, Charlie's saying in it. Um, and if you want to go even deeper than that, like into some serious transparent, like management styles, you should read that book. Idea America. I can never say it. Idea meritocracy or whatever that. Yeah. Was an in. idea meritocracy. And Ray Dalio, who is a multi-multi-billionaire, one of the largest, you know, one of the biggest and wealthiest people in the country, starts that book off by saying, I'm a dumb shit. So it's also from the standpoint of, you know, don't necessarily just take it from Charlie that this stuff works. Look at, okay, tech has been extremely successful. Look at Google, look at Facebook, look at all these places. Look at a guy like Jamath Palihapitiya, who got to be close to a billionaire status just because of his Facebook shares. And look at, okay, why were, you know, back in the day, investment bankers called the masters of the universe? Why are the private equity guys, you know, paid so much? And why is private equity like taking over? Look at all of these instances what do they all share in common? Ownership, not not maybe just in mentality, but also in the form of you know compensation, and they pay people more than they can get anywhere else. It's pretty it, common it, amongst like all of these giant, like the the titans, the titanic industries that have you know risen in America, all have that in common. Well, and in my experience is like it's just. Charlie, I couldn't agree with you more. We're like, it's, you're hiring one at a time. And to your point, Billy, like when we upped our pay of our team before we sold, I mean, 
just uh, I'm going to make up these numbers to get the point across, but let's say, you know, on 115 employees, we paid our executive team uh, prior to our evolution, like 90 grand. And guess what we got for that? (laughs) Everybody's probably, I mean, and there's been a lot of inflation that was 10 years ago, but like, then all of a sudden when we sold there, I call it a buck 25 plus bonus or more or whatever the heck it was, call it, you know, two hundreds in with different things. And it's like, there's, no words to describe the difference of my responsibilities afterwards because of what was involved. And what's interesting, I want to hear your comment, Charlie, of like when I heard the when I heard the first one, because like I was like, oh, our management team is doing pretty damn well. And then all of a sudden I hired Paul Rahowski, who is my CI. I'm like, he the relativity, it was like, holy shit. Now I can see what it like. It was like he immediately, there was a different calibration, like the, the stick, the measurement stick got different. And so I was curious and like how you see that evolution of you hire the one rock star. And then that makes, now you have a different gauge of how everybody else is and how you kind of keep that, that, uh, that healthy leveling up of everybody. Well, you know, I, I think talent builds momentum, you know, so if Tom Brady suddenly becomes your quarterback, your level of commitment to the team is probably very different than if it's Baker Mayfield, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, people, when they see talent, want to aspire to be like them. Um, Or in some cases it makes people turtle Mm -hmm. where they're like, I can never be like that. So, you know, I need to get out of here. Mm -hmm. You know, things are changing. So, you know, you generate those two responses where people either say, I got to up my game or, you know, not surprisingly, some people are like, things are changing and I don't think I'm going to make it in this new uh, new deal. And, and you have some people mm-hmm. that parachute out and you get the right people parachuting out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that's all natural, doesn't really require a lot of movement from the leader. It's, uh, you know, you bring better people in and people start sorting themselves out as to whether they want to, you know, rise to the new level or whether they want to go find somewhere easier to work. Yep. Makes it, I, I, I would agree. I've, from my experience as well. And as we're kind of rounding, um, rounding up here, the, mm-hmm. I'm curious on what your thoughts are on the long term ownership of your business because in i'll give you some context charlie and billy i want maybe both mm-hmm. of your guys' thoughts on this is because like in our training program charlie we talk about like valuations deal structures different ways people can exit for like esops private equity internal third party doesn't matter essentially all i want for everybody charlie is just for them to get what they want but i help them clarify mm-hmm. it and then it's like hey here's the trade-offs it's very similar to what you're saying like i will never tell anybody what to do it's like here's your what you want here's your trade-offs I don't care. But like one of the things that I think is a, is a challenge for people that have a wonderful culture, which I can imagine that you do, you have a cohesive culture, you've got a cohesive and wonderful business, how to monetize that, but to keep that intact. And I see ESOPs pop up a lot and all the different, you know, it's, there's varying flavors of private equity that might be able to accomplish that, but it's harder when you have built something like an or I call it an organism, what you've probably got is like, there's a, there's an ecosystem that's living and breathing. That's not just a three statement financial report. Right. So I'm curious when you think about the future, how do you, what do you want for the business long-term? Well, you know, 
this is really central to what Billy and I talk about. Uh, I'd be very comfortable if it ends in an ESOP, you know, because we have a great team. I'm very proud of them. Uh, they're very dedicated and they're capable of running the business, you know, for you know, the, the team I have are probably 20 plus years younger than I am. So, you know, they have a lot ahead of them in their careers. So, you know, if if they could be the buyer of the company as an ESOP, I think that would be a home run. Uh, I'm telling them that if that's the exit they want, you know, we have some work to do. And they're responding to that. I love that. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but uh, one way or the other, you know, we're, Billy and I are working together to figure out how to engineer the most valuable company out of what we've got. And, you know, I'll just give you a quick, you know, last year we had 26% revenue growth and 4% gross margin growth. And, you know, Billy, keep doing that. <laughs> you know, if you can continue to hold at the 40% level, uh, and, and, and we have about 20 million in sales. And about 20 employees. Wow, good for you Yeah, guys. if you can keep growing your total revenues and improving your gross margins, yeah. things are going to look very nice for you, my friend. I just uh, just got done. <laughs> just got done interview. It'll be uh, depends on when this this comes out, but I just got done interviewing Casey Brown. She's a pricing specialist. She just suggested mm-hmm. doing exactly what you guys are talking about. Have you ever seen her speak? She speaks to Visage, I think. I have not heard her yet. Um. So like, and then uh, oh, where's it going with that? Um. So. Anything because Billy in our, in our prep call, you were talking about some of the kind of the more uh, concrete numbers of like longevity. But like Charlie, anything that you're willing to share as far as like tenure of employees or growth or anything to make this concrete for people? Because there's a book back there, Conscious Capitalism, and I love that it's like my Bible. Okay. And they have hey, like by the way, there's all these great things. And by the way, it's also if you even if you're the most greedy human being, this is still probably the way to go. And I feel like that's probably going to be the case. I'm just curious of like. Tenure of employee, any kind of stats that you're willing to share of like the success that you're having? Well, we have we have roughly 20 employees, so we have a handful of engineers. The engineers, you know, the the most senior is uh, he's probably been with the company close to 10 years. Uh, he's 40 years old. Uh, he's our COO. Uh, he has a MBA. He's got a master's in blast mechanics. Uh, and he's a professional engineer. His brother uh, runs our shop, which we didn't have a shop. Uh, you know, so I learned from having a shop, you don't want to have a shop. <laughs> so we actually did close to $25 million of revenue with five employees by sourcing everything out, not doing anything ourselves other than manage the project and manage the product development. Hmm. And we did that with five people. But, you know, when I brought Adam in, uh, he's like, you know, we're losing a lot of margin by farming some things out that we could do ourselves. And we could, you know, if we had the machinery, we had the the shop, we, we could, you know, expand our margins and do it better. So I challenged him to say, okay, let's not build the shop bigger than we know we could fill every day with work. So let's have a small shop and 
let's hire the best people. And we're in Charlotte, and Charlotte is, you know, where a lot of race teams are headquartered. And, you know, if you're looking at metal fabrication, the guys that do it for the race teams are like the best of breed. You know, those guys, like the smallest difference is life or no death kidding. to a race yeah. team. So our guys have that level of craftsmanship. So when our product goes out the door, it looks so much better than our competitors. It's ridiculous. And also those guys can put out a lot of work pretty quickly uh, if they're excited about what they're doing. So, you know, in our shop, our shop is only maybe we built it right before COVID. So we're probably approaching five years and we have just seen the margins out of that shop. So hmm. we put, you know, wonderful equipment in it. Uh, we keep buying better and faster and, you know, cleaner and more precision equipment in. And those guys treat it like gold. And, uh, you know, it just really has built an engine that allows us to, to, to move our margins up, stay competitive, not have to raise prices too much, uh, and really give the customer an amazing product. And then if you couple that with really smart young engineers who are constantly figuring out with the manufacturing people, how can we make your job easier? Mm. What can we change in the design to where this the fit and finish will come together better, easier, cleaner? So, and really it's those race team guys. They're constantly looking for a way to make something a tiny bit That's better. That's awesome. So we have guys with that mindset and we have engineers with that mindset and they're constantly working together to make things more precise, uh, cleaner to, to, to build, uh, stronger engineering. And then we use outside engineers who have these massive supercomputers to be sure that our designs have the integrity to withstand the customer needs. Awesome. So it's, it's kind of a cool thing, but, you know, I, I like your flywheel uh, uh, deal because we kind of have a flywheel working on that. Mm -hmm. We're, we're, you know, when the one side is feeding the other side and there's a lot of trust and in fact, we put one of our engineers this year uh, in the shop, you know, so he's actually working hand in glove with those guys. So, you know, he's actually seeing it rather than just looking at a screen. Uh, so it's, it's pretty cool. I can just feel the pride of ownership. You know what I mean? Like I, that's, it's just, it, I have a visceral feeling against that. It, not visceral. Is that the right word? Uh, like, like, an act, a good, like it's a sure. very real feeling of, of goodness based on pride of ownership that I'm assuming your team has. It's uh, it, they do, yeah. it, you know, again, we're back to, I, I'm almost not needed. You know, I, I, I've got this thing going where people are working together and they're very committed and they're seeing, you know, more money to feed their family. And, and they know that as it gets better, their, their income gets better. And, uh, you know, they love that customers, uh, have, you know, wonderful feedback to their products. And, you know, we, we protect things. So our guys really love that what they're doing actually has that we're protecting the need yeah, yeah. and facilities, so, you know, that's, that, that, that we're not just making some kind of stupid widget that, mm. you know, really doesn't matter mm -hmm. that much, you know, so our guys have the, 
uh, feeling that what we do does matter. Which Charlie, a lot of helps, a lot of on, helps grease a lot of entrepreneurs and founders that uh, we stumble across. Their identity is super tied into what they do. As you, as your mantra of "I don't want to be needed," and by the way, I also <laughs> will second that. That's kind of my 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 main strive uh, as well. But like, where mm-hmm. do you find your identity as you're constantly decoupling yourself with the business? Where do I find my identity? Well, you know, I. I'm a family person. One of the the most profound things I ever saw was I lived with my grandparents right after my granddad retired for a year, right out of college. One year, I went to all of his parties, and I was like the one 20-year-old with a bunch of 60 to 70-year-olds who were almost all CEOs or, you know, presidents of banks or president of law firms you know, managing partners, et cetera. And the thing that I noticed is the first sentence is, you know, hi, Ryan, how are you doing? And you answer. The second question is, how's your family, right? And what I learned is people are only as happy as their most unhappy kid. Wow, we could just mic drop and shut off the podcast on that one. (laughs) Ryan, I'm telling you, man, he can go, he can go all day with these nuggets yeah that's amen to that (laughs) so you know i mean so my identity is in supporting my family and motivating my family enjoying my family you know and 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 the other thing that that really is super powerful you've got two kids i've got two kids maybe you have more than two kids i hope not i only know of two (laughs) (laughs) all right so 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 we 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 share two (laughs) the power of your believing in your kid and they're knowing that you believe in them is massive Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of parents who are constantly telling their kids everything they're doing wrong my opinion huge mistake be authentic and constantly tell them what they're doing right. Mm-hmm. And that will change everything. And you got to do that with your employees mm-hmm. too. You know, find ways to praise them for things they're doing right. They can't be bullshit though. Mm-hmm. If you're praising them about something that's not mm-hmm. great, they mm-hmm. know it and suddenly you're not credible. Mm-hmm. But figure out what is it they're doing great and make sure that you affirm it. And anybody who feels believed in by whoever it is that's, you know, their parent, their boss, whatever, you want to set a fire, uh, have them know that you believe in them. I don't even have any rebuttal or anything to that. <laughs> Just like, hey, it, it, that's, I, I, you know what's so cool, Charlie, is uh, first of all, again, hour and 10, 15 minutes, and I, I mean, I would already work for you. You know what I mean? And it's so int- interesting to watch that. And so my business partner, Matt Buskert, um, I've never had like, so it was my dad and I before and boss, friend, fan. I mean, there were so many roles swirled into that, you know, that soup that it was difficult to figure out which way it was up anytime. But like this, I've never worked for anybody essentially ever in my entire life. Me too. Yeah. And, and, the, so, I'm the same. and so, uh, my, my partner, Matt Buskirk, uh, 
you you guys resemble each other quite a bit like because i would never have taken directions and i'm like matt i'll do whatever you want me to do man <laughs> like, seriously and it's because he, he just embodies nice. everything you're saying and it's my fr- it's it's i'm saying this because i i am so impressed and it's like it, it's hard to describe from my perspective because i never experienced that before and the people that might be listening in whether they're the leader that wants to aspire to be this or they've either or it's someone listening that has a boss i mean it's i've never other than experiencing it i was like well supposedly people are like this but like when you find it it's like for me honestly when i was meeting man i'm like well where's the uh where's the the skeletons you know what i mean or like where's the the gotcha mm-hmm. and then when it, it and that just embodies trust and in re, release of anxiety and stress so in the last 12 years we have not had one person leave because they wanted to leave. Zero. Something's working. <laughs> you know, and yeah, well, I mean, pe- people love to be part of something that's winning, and people love to feel embraced and, uh, and love to be empowered. So, you know, if you, if you give them a winning result, they see it in their paycheck, they're respected in their job and they're challenged to get better and they have the help to get better. People, people like that. Sign me up. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that it's, it's really not any more complicated than that. Uh, you know, so that's, that's what I do for what it's I worth. love it. You know, so uh, this has been so fun, Billy. Anyway. I'm so appreciative of you setting this up and, uh, Charlie, you delivered on the goods, whether you knew what was promised or not. <laughs> so, I... so, 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 so I want to say for Billy, you know, so, so Billy is moving uh, deeply into the benefits business, you know, which is 401k uh, and, and I don't know where else that's going to grow, but you know, that's a big part too. I, we, we do a five, four match uh, on a 401k. You know, we encourage people to do their 401ks, uh, and Billy's going to help get a better return for them, which I'm excited about, uh, and for me too, for that matter. <laughs> uh, and like our healthcare, for example, we do an HSA. We we fund it 100% on our side to the max. That's awesome. So the max d- depends on your age and if you're mm-hmm. married or not married. In my case. It's close to $9,000. Mm. So even if there's a welder who has a family, we're putting $9,000 day one, January 1st, into their 401k. I mean, their their HSA. And their max uh, deal is $5,000 yeah, for their family. Yeah, but 4000 more at the beginning of the year than their deductible. Correct. So they're going to have a zero cash health insurance and then 4000 to do dental insurance or pay for oh, the dental it's themselves. It's so important these days. Or, I mean, it's so important. Yeah. yeah. But but it takes their anxiety out. You know, if they see that they don't have to worry about their health care, that their 401k is growing, uh, their bonuses are happening, they're empowered, they're embraced, they feel like they're in a family, and we listen to them. You know, what are you, what are you missing? Like, yeah, just, yeah, like what are you? <laughs> it's just being 
you know, if, if they feel respected, they're going to pay you back 10 yeah. times. And the, to, to your point, Charlie, like the other things that do benefits, it's really, it's more just having these types of conversations. Like what are, you know, if uh, I'm a big nature guy, so I, I kind of look at like, you know, where's the nutrients in the soil or the benefits and the culture? You're people are only going to grow and contribute and like give you enough, so much of a harvest if you treat the soil. And it's just really, it's just really digging in and helping business owners like with the actual tough questions and, you know, embracing, you know, that I've, I've gotten to know all different kinds of people with all different kinds of styles. Um, and, you know, just helping people explore that, you know, I, cause I, I don't make money unless we're doing some sort of actual transaction or, you know, if we're, you know, doing some sort of 401k management, I just find topics like these fascinating. And part of my business is, is to give and receive. So, you know, I'm all about planting seeds. So that's what I do. And, and, And I'm constantly having discussions with Billy really all any smart people I can find as to, you know, here's what we're doing. What do you think? Mm-hmm. You know, if you talk to enough smart people and you listen and you have a little bit of common sense, you can learn so much from smart people. You know, you don't have to come up with it, everything yourself. So, <laughs> I, you know, I, uh, I, I, I there's going to be a lot of clips out of this, Charlie. <laughs> I'm just gonna grab. I know it's. I I know we gotta wrap up. Yeah. We gotta wrap up here. But like I can. You know, sure. I get. I, I can only imagine. Like you know. Um, the the there's this indication there's a, of leadership and the respect and trust that a leader has. Where I can only feel. I like Charlie. If I can only imagine if you looked at one of your employees and said, "I'm disappointed." I bet you they would mm. turn into a ball of mush, which is way, way like that shows that there's the respect and the leadership and all that stuff is there because I wouldn't want to disappoint you based on this conversation. And, but that's that mutual trust and the shared vision and the, and the, just the collaboration. So I, I props to you, man, this, well, yeah, this you. has been so fun. So a couple questions to wrap up. Uh, I don't know, Billy, if this was the, I can't remember when you were actually on the show, but I asked uh, everybody what the word intentional means because I, I changed the name of the show like three years ago or something like that. And I love the definitions that people have been given. So I don't know who we want to start with. We'll maybe start with you, Charlie, of what the word intentional means to you. And then we'll go to you, Billy. Well, in, intentional is doing what you say you're going to do and, and having deep-rooted uh, uh, judgment behind it. So to be intentional, first you have to have common sense and judgment, and then you have to have the impetus to make it happen. I like it. How about you, Billy? So to me, intentional, uh, you know, the, so there's certainly, you know, the, the, the Webster's definition, which we can all look up. I like to look at intentional uh, at a level deeper as not the book definition, but intentional to a set of principles and that your intentionality to those principles and to the way that you want to treat others and that the way that you want to live your life 
can and will evolve over time, but that's the grounding factor, not the intention to necessarily do one thing or the other, but I think living with intentionality is to have those grounded, those grounding principles. And I think that, you know, that served Charlie well because of, you know, principles of like, you know, I need to talk to smart people about these things. I need to hire people that are smarter than me. Don't pull on the other side of the rope and no drama. I heard that loud and clear, Charlie. Absolutely. <laughs> um, what's the best place to find each of you guys? In, uh, in, in if what? you want to give, uh, if company best place, someone wanted to reach out, oh, if the company LinkedIn, okay. you could say smoke signals, whatever your preference is. You want to go first? Yeah, uh, I'm Bluewood Capital. Um, you can you know find us via Google search, or you know, I'm happy to provide a link. You know, if, if Brian wants to do that. Yeah, we'll put the links in the show notes. So, so uh, we're Contech Industries, which is K-O-N-T-E-K. People want to put a C into it. There isn't one. <laughs> so it's Contech Industries. Uh, you know, we're www.contechindustries.com. Uh, my email is cbmerrill4 at sbcglobal.net. Uh, When's this like? You know, interesting. My first day, uh, you know, we did. We had a totally insolvent company. And the, the prior CEO, who we had to let go, would hide from creditors. Mm. And I told the switchboard, listen, anybody that calls asking for me, put them through. Don't ask them one gating question. Just put them through. I'll talk to them. Right? You know, so I still have that attitude as to, you know, you put my cell phone. I don't care. <laughs> Someone wants to talk to me. My cell phone is 573-380-6519. Call me if, if, if you have a reason to talk to me. Um, I'll take your call. Even though I have RoboKiller, leave a voice message, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll respond if it's something authentic. Uh, anyway, so I, I just think being accessible is a big deal, you know. So I, I appreciate that. There yeah, it no, is. I pre- you guys, this is this you has bet. been fantastic. I have very much enjoyed this. Billy, thank you for setting this up. It's been awesome. Charlie, thank you for the time. I appreciate your stories and uh, thanks for doing what you're doing, man. I can only imagine how many lives you're changing with your employees, the com- com- or the customers you're working with, the communities. It's been awesome. Thanks for having us. Uh, Billy's a great partner. Uh, ha- happy to be uh, have him as a friend and uh, account partner. Goes really? both ways. Awesome. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, Ryan. You bet. Th- thanks, Ryan. Thanks for tuning in for that conversation with Charlie and Billy. It, you probably gathered that I really respected Charlie's style of leadership. And I've experienced that recently in this last year with my partner, Matt Buskirk. But there's very few times that I've been like, oh, my gosh, that individual truly understands leadership. And I really think that Charlie has. And it's his level of clarity on what is right and wrong, his clear goals, and his ability to communicate that with the team and then get out of the way and then guide them. His story about that idea that one of his uh, employees brought up and he didn't really think it was a good idea. And then it worked and he was okay with it and how he handled that and how he handles 
just the management of the business, but also the ownership, I think is possible for everybody. But I think it takes us as leaders to understand what are our ownership goals? What do we expect financially from the equity growth of the company? What do we expect from the distributions versus reinvestments? And then how do we communicate that with our team? And then if we truly want to get out of the way, let the people drive the results and help guide them along the way instead of getting involved. And I think it takes all of these pieces, the recipe to truly allow ourselves to eliminate, you know, reduce our anxiety and let the people run the companies the way that they should be for their jobs. So that way we can be the leaders and the owners that we should be. So I thought this was a wonderful example of leadership and ownership alignment and the outcomes that are possible when it's actually there. And the episode next week that I recommend tuning into is with Anthony Taylor. We're going to be talking about how strategic planning can be aligned. So once the ownership understands their goals, then The strategic planning should account for the resources that the leadership team has available to them and then how they actually build the strategies to go get it. If you have not checked out the Intentional Growth Financial Scorecard, highly recommend doing so. I mentioned that at the beginning of the episode. You get an Intentional Growth Score, four custom scores in four different areas, and then five videos about what good looks like and how to view and run your company like a financial asset. So thanks everybody for tuning in and I will see you next week. 